Hello and welcome to Sam Was Here, a podcast for parents who have lost a son or a daughter to addiction. My name is Angie. Last November 14th at 12.16 a.m., I received the phone call that changed my life forever. My son was dead. I'm here to talk about Sam's life, addiction, and death, to openly discuss my grief, healing, and the decision to move forward. I hope parents listening will find comfort in knowing that they are not alone, support in navigating their grief, and also feel inspired to move forward without regret or shame. We can't bring our kids back, but I believe that we can and should grow stronger in our grief because it's the only choice we have. Welcome to this very first episode of Sam Was Here. Thank you so much for stopping by. As a self-proclaimed podcast lover, I know that there are thousands of great ones to listen to, so I'm truly grateful that you stopped by to check this one out. In today's episode, I'll set the tone for this podcast to help you understand why we're here by covering four different ideas. First, I'll give you a brief overview of Sam's addiction and the immediate aftermath of his death. Second, I'll talk about how losing a child to addiction is different from losing them any other way and why these differences make it extra important for us to spend the time and energy necessary to process our son or daughter's life, addiction, and death in order to heal and move forward. Third, I'll catch you up on the first four months following Sam's death. Specifically, the changes I've noticed in my grief and the steps I've taken to move forward from constant anxiety, fear, and sleepless nights towards acceptance, calm, and introspection. Each of us here is on our own timeline, and I feel that sometimes hearing another person's perspective of where they are can offer a place of reference. Fourth, I'll leave you with three small but very specific actions that you can take today and every day to feel a little better. Healing from this kind of loss doesn't come in big momentous waves, but through tiny and and consistent actions on a daily basis. So as a wrap up, I will close this end every week by sharing one of the many limericks that I have written and continue to write since losing Sam. I feel like limericks are a great and profound way to simply state a specific thought or a feeling without adding the flower or the fluff. And I love this way of presenting my thoughts. So let's get started. On November 13th of last year, two cops and an advocate showed up at Sam's dad's house. It was late at night and he went to the door. He saw the cops and his first thought was, oh yeah, Sam's in trouble again. Sam was on probation. In fact, he was due to enter his, his seventh rehab four days after this, um, this visit from the cops. So when Scott walked to the door and he saw that their cars were parked right out in front, he immediately had this dread and he knew that we had lost our son. He immediately tried to call me, but I was on the road cause I was returning from vacation. So instead he called our other three adult children. And then one of them came to the house and together they called me And at 12.16 a.m. on November 14th of 2022, my life changed and the world as I knew it stopped forever. Sam's death followed eight years of treatment, seven years of opioid addiction, 
It was six years after his first heroin overdose. He went to two, three inpatient and three outpatient rehab facilities. He robbed a bank. He spent time in jail, in prison, in halfway houses, in various hospitals, and at times he lived on the streets. He start and quit or was fired from numerous jobs. He stole from us, lied to us, and walked away from many people who loved him. He overdosed multiple times and nearly lost an arm to sepsis once. Sam's addiction and death was a dark, dark path into destruction. And so since his very first overdose, I became acutely aware that this was a really, really big and bad thing. A lot of people around me acted like cheerleaders. They felt really confident that he was going to get this. But while I appreciate the optimism, my life has always been based in reality. And I had always known that heroin was a very dark and dirty drug. Um, You think of people like Janis Joplin, River Phoenix, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who lost their lives to heroin. So I always kind of associated it with actors and musicians and people in that kind of a world with money. So you can imagine when I first found out that Sam was using heroin, my, I felt like my world just dropped out in front of me. And I couldn't believe that a kid of mine who I thought was reasonable would actually use heroin, let alone stick a needle into his arm. So while we're watching Sam's life slowly self-destruct, we kept on to the hope and the faith that he would be able to recover if he chose to. We knew we needed a miracle, and I chose to look outside of us for other people that have have found these miracles. I know several people personally from Sam's different rehabs that that are on the process of strongly recovering from heroin. I also read Nikki Six Diaries, and he is a member of Motley Crue who had a very profound heroin addiction and almost died many times. And I would not have read the stories... Um, it, with belief, if he hadn't had the money and the fame to get away with it all. And I was so stunned by his addiction and the stories that I read, but he recovered and he's in recovery and has been for years. And he's honestly been my biggest hero ever since Sam started using heroin. I always held on to the belief that if Nikki Six could recover after all of the stories that I read, that Sam could too. So that's not the case, but we never left anything on the table. We always hoped that Sam would make the decision to recover. So when he died, we were so devastated, but nobody who actually knew him well was surprised. The thing that I immediately experienced upon learning that Sam had died was disbelief and fear. I just couldn't have been that mom who lost a kid to addiction. I made that decision early on in Sam's treatment. This was not going to be the way that this ended up. So I felt like it was a big slap in the face. Um, I felt a tremendous amount of fear. I felt like everything about me, my confidence, my joy, my optimism, my independence, and all the things that made me who I am suddenly just left me. I was full of anxiety, disbelief, dread, overwhelm, and I lost all of my ambition. I couldn't do anything that once gave me joy and made me feel better. I didn't 
feel like it was possible to survive, but at the same time, I knew that I had to because I have a good life and I have three other amazing children and a lot to live for. And the one thing I knew immediately, though, was that I could make two choices. I could stop talking about Sam's addiction and his death. I've been blogging about it for years, but now is the time. I can stop, it's over, or I can continue. And I did know immediately that I would continue. And one of the biggest reasons for this was that through sharing about Sam's addiction and his overdose for the past six years, whether it be blogging or in my yoga classes, I've constantly had people coming up to me or calling me or emailing me, telling me, thank you for putting words to a story that I haven't been able to. Nobody around me understands what I'm going through, and I feel ashamed and I feel judged. And so I knew immediately that my voice would continue as here we are. So I want to talk about now how losing a kid this way is different. And um, often when we lose a kid, it's unexpected. It's completely unexpected, and it's maybe due to a car accident or some other kind of an accident. So while there's all the shock, there's also the surprise. When we lose our kids, we are shocked, but we're not surprised necessarily. For me, I saw it potentially coming for six years. The second way is that when a kid is ill, um, due to another cause other than addiction, they're often fighting like hell and to survive. And in addiction, it's not always the case. So when Sam first entered rehab, he saw light at the end of the tunnel. He was willing to do what it took. And as is so often the case throughout the process, as the addiction took over, Sam took a sideline. So while Scott and I and the rest of the family were trying so hard to keep him alive, he was just a bystander. He was using all the drugs he wanted, and he was making the choice to continue to move in his direction while watching us move in ours. So three, one of the reasons um, why this is so different is because we often lose them long before we do. It feels like you're watching your kid through some kind of a plexiglass slowly destruct and just melt into the spot of addiction and then death, and there's nothing you can do about it. You talk, but they don't hear you. You try, but they don't respond, and so it feels extremely powerless. Now, the fourth reason we often have a dark story to unpack and it's extremely uncomfortable we know that most of our friends and family can't understand the betrayal, the lies, the dishonesty, the insanity, all that we've experienced. And um, the fifth reason is that we may feel a sense of relief that makes us incredibly uncomfortable to acknowledge to the rest of the world, knowing that only another parent like us might understand. And so why do these reasons make it super important that we take the time to process our kids' addiction and death. Well, one thing that I realized after Sam died was that all of a sudden I had all these years of trauma, and even though I had excellent friends and I had been writing and talking, my main and sole focus was to keep Sam alive. And I know that many of you are experiencing this too. It's all of a sudden like, oh my God, what the hell just happened? I don't even, I can't even comprehend that after all this time, all this energy spent, all this hope that we had, all of a sudden our kid is dead. 
So the trauma that we experience is not only with their death, but it extends the entire length of their, of their addiction. And all this time, it's like, it's been a constant moving target. So we have not had time to actually face the trauma that we've been dealt. Another reason is addiction is a silent disease. A silence is just as much our enemy as it was our kids' enemy. We know that silence kept them in shame and feeling alone. And if we choose the same avenue, we face the same consequences. So it's super important that we deal with and face these emotions that we're left with, even if they're uncomfortable. Whether they're anger, fear, regret, frustration, disbelief, or even relief, if we don't face it and process it, it will control and consume us. Uh, another reason is that guilt, shame, regret, anger, and almost every other negative emotion I can think of is a natural byproduct of losing our kids to addiction. There's an ugliness we don't want to look at, but we have to. We need to be honest with ourselves about the true scope of our kids' addiction. We didn't cause it, we couldn't cure it, and we couldn't control it. And when we face that truth, just how big and powerful this addiction is, it will help us untangle this horrible web that we've been left with. Another reason is that we need to get comfortable with our relief. If we feel it, um, then we need to be, be comfortable with it and accept it. So I do feel it and I did feel it and it's time to talk about it. Most parents aren't going to understand this, but let me tell you what I feel relief about. I'll never get the phone call again. I don't have to worry that Sam's going to get murdered, tortured, or face any other kind of violence. I don't have to worry that he'll rob another bank or commit a worse crime. He will never murder somebody. He'll never become part of a gang or hurt another person. He won't end up in prison for the rest of his life. So while there are so many directions his life could have taken, I don't think that death is the worst. I feel like anyone listening here would understand, but most of the rest of the world may not. And that's why this is a safe space. So I've already talked about my feelings and emotions right when Sam died, but now I kind of want to take an honest look about what my life looked at right at the beginning. So I drank a lot of beer. I watched constant Netflix, as did the rest of my family. We were on Netflix almost 24-7. We watched a lot of really dark movies and um, documentaries. I don't know, maybe to make us feel better. I don't know what it was, but I didn't want to be alone. And uh, must, m much of my immediate family, we kind of went from house to house, back and forth from Scott's to my house. Terrence and his wife, of course, were in their house the whole time. But we, the four of us slept at the same house for probably about a week because we just didn't want to be alone. Um, the constant crying, I constantly cried. And my eyes were, I look like death warmed over. I think I aged about 10 years immediately. I couldn't keep a schedule. I did whatever I want, whenever I wanted, because I knew that the only thing I could do at, at that point was just to breathe and get through the days. So time went on like that. And then one day I woke up and I felt like shit. 
and I decided I was ready to take some action. So all I did in the beginning was I did a few things for minimal amounts of time with hopes that momentum would take over. So I took some short walks. I love nature. I'm usually out a lot, but all I could do was get out for about five minutes and that's okay. It sucked. I hated it. Didn't enjoy it at all, but I did it anyway. The other thing I did was I started to write a little bit more. I started to delve into the research of making a podcast. Um, the, one of the scariest things for me to start again was my hot yoga practice because yoga is a place that I have really connected with my deepest and darkest emotions throughout this entire process. So fortunately, I have a little hot yoga dome so I can practice hot yoga at home. And there was no possible way I was going to be able to step into a studio with all my friends and the people I had been teaching for years. So when I was able to practice even for a little bit, I set up my hot yoga dome. My first practice was about 15 minutes. It was very painful, very emotional. But gradually that too with time, I began to practice more and more. And then eventually now I'm about at an hour again, most days. I also practice at the studio again, and I'm teaching at the studio again, which has all been, you know, difficult, but really profound and very healing. So I want to stress how important it is that we don't wait to feel like moving forward. If I had waited, I would be exactly where I was two and three months ago. So healing from this kind of horrible, big, profound, and overwhelming grief doesn't happen in big chunks, and it doesn't happen suddenly. It only happens, in my experience, if we make the actual decision to take the tiny little steps we need to. So a couple other things I did other than kind of push myself to do the things that used to bring me joy is that I recognized I really needed more order in my life. Uh, the first uh, week I didn't make my bed, which is extremely unusual for me. So that's a great place I started. I started to make my bed and then I started to reorganize my house and I actually took the time and space to create an office for myself so that I could podcast and write in a space that's all mine. And that has been so profound to me. And it's given me not only a purpose, but also it's been, I feel like I've honored myself in deciding that this is a way that I can both heal myself and help the rest of the world. And so actually providing myself with a space and a place to do so. So as in all these things, I started to feel like my natural flow of energy started to come back. And I was reminded how each little step builds a little bit of momentum. And the most important thing is that we try and that we remain consistent. Because most importantly, I am going to stand here and say strongly that my son's addiction and death is not a two-for-one deal. I have a life that I love. I have three other amazing kids. I have so much passion and so much joy on the table and a lot of years left. And I also find that the stronger that I get in processing Sam's death, the easier it is to, for me to fully embrace his entire life and to let him live with me side by side 
without feeling like I have to push them away because it's too painful. So that covers the first three points of this podcast. And before moving on to the fourth point, I'm going to go back and give a quick recap of the first three points. So first of all, many of us lost our kids after weeks, months, or years of addiction. And for this reason, our experience is unique to us and one that very few people in the outside world understand. Second, even though we knew that their death was a distinct possibility, we're often left with a unique aftermath that feels dark, tangled, and unfinished. And third, the only way through our grief is to allow ourselves to both process this trauma and to make the choice to take small, consistent steps on a daily basis. And that brings us to our fourth and what I think is the most important part because it's the only part that we really have control over right now, which is moving forward in our grief. So here are three small steps you can take every single day. First, do one thing that brings you joy. If you're brand new in your grief, nothing's going to bring you joy. You're going to have to find one thing that used to bring you joy, as I mentioned earlier in my podcast. I was miserable when I started doing these things, but eventually they made me feel better. This is the power of taking the first small step. Second, do one thing that makes your life better. By this, I mean pay a bill or do your laundry or do your sink of dishes. We don't feel like doing anything because we don't care about anything. And I get it. I've been there. Sometimes I'm still there. However, it is really important once again to take that small step because one step forward today can lead to two steps forward tomorrow. It's also very important to take these steps to do these things because it reminds us of the small ways that we still have control over our life during this time that we feel absolutely and positively out of control. And the third and most important step that each one of us can take every single day is to pursue, form, and strengthen our connections with people that both understand us and support our journey. In a world where so many don't understand addiction, the importance of these relationships cannot be overstated and are absolutely necessary to help us move forward in our grief. We cannot grow in a toxic environment of misunderstanding and judgment, even if it's the one most familiar to us. So in closing, here is the limerick of the week. He could see all his faults and had shame. He tried to take all of the blame. But his genes did some talking, family history some stalking, and those odds he just couldn't tame. Thank you so much for joining this very first episode. I look forward to every single Tuesday where we discuss addiction, life, death, and how we can move forward from here. I'll see you soon. Have a beautiful day.